We won't stay in Acts chapter 25 very long. There's actually one other passage of scripture I'm going to ask you to turn to, so get ready to turn again in a moment. But I just want to read the opening now to this chapter. We usually have a little shorter time that we set aside for the preaching on the days that we break bread at the Lord's table. But uh, So I'm just going to like sort of crack this story open a little bit. And there's one particular thing, there's one particular thought that comes to mind concerning the opening of this, of this part of the account of Paul in Jerusalem. There's one particular passage of scripture that my mind very quickly goes to. So let me read some of this and then I'll explain. Acts chapter 25 and verse 1. And I just want to read the first 12 verses. Well, verse 27 of the previous chapter says that after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Amazing, right? These are the, these are the successors, about three decades removed now, but two and a half, three decades removed. These are the successors to the ones who plotted against Jesus to get him killed. So again, they're trying to use the Roman authority to set up someone they wanted to kill, to kill them. And yet they worried about making sure they were legal with the way they spent the money that they had paid to have Jesus betrayed. Again, I don't say that to criticize them. We are them. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? We are them. We're capable of all of that and worse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And if you don't think you are, you don't get the gospel. That's right. you, don't, you don't get why Jesus died if you think you're better than them. Uh, verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, which is where uh, Felix left him, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When, and I understand, year, some time has passed. We know that, that, that Felix during those years, it said in the previous passage, would call Paul in and talk to him and talk to him and talk to him and listen to him, hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, which Paul never did. Now Felix is gone, and now here's Festus bringing him out to go through all this again. We've already seen this happen in Jerusalem, in front of Lysias, the commander, and the mob. We've already seen this happen a couple of times at court. Now here we go again. 
When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Have I offended in anything at all? That's pretty much all authority, right? So there's the law, the law of Moses. Nope, didn't break anything there. There's the temple, in other words, the religious system of the Jews. Nope, didn't offend anything there. Nor against Caesar, that's the Roman law. Nope, didn't do anything wrong there either. It's nice to have a conscience that's clear like that, to be able to say, to be able to say nope, haven't done anything. Nothing at all. Festus, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. That's Paul's very eloquent way of saying, enough. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you've appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. That, by the way, uh, as clever as that sounds, that was not news to Paul, because Paul had already been informed that he was going to Rome, right? Who told him that? The Lord Jesus himself had already appeared years before now to Paul to encourage him and said, you're going to testify for me. So Paul already knew. So when, when, uh, when Festus says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. It's just, it's just, it's just he, Paul must have been like, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, just like you said, Lord, here we go. Right? Amazing. All right, let's go through some of the details and then we're going to flip somewhere else to a familiar passage of scripture that we probably have not in detail looked at in years, but we're going to come to it today. So what's going on here? Back in the beginning of the passage, Festus comes to the province, and after three days, he goes from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Caesarea is the seat of the Roman procurator in the province of Judea. Festus is filling a role that Pilate did almost 30 years earlier. Not the same title. Pontius Pilate, in those days, the Romans led by what was called a prefect. Uh, uh, This fellow, Felix, and then Festus, they were what are called procurators. Uh, The difference being the prefect had probably more military might whereas a procurator had some military might, but was more like a, like a tax collector for Caesar. But they, both were, the, they were both the governors of, of the region, just in case you're interested in the Roman history there. Um, what's amazing about this is what? He comes into the capital city, which is Caesarea, stays there for a few days, and then goes straight to Jerusalem. Because, you know, as the governor of Judea, there's the source of all of your trouble. By the way, the time, you can time this, date this from history. 
This is somewhere in the late 50s, around 60 or so A.D. Do you know what happens in 66 A.D. in that part of the world? The uprising, the beginning of... So we're only a few years away from a major war that ultimately ends with the Romans destroying Jerusalem and tearing the temple down. So things are a-brewing, as they would say, right? So, so, he, so uh, Festus comes into town, rolls into Caesarea, and realizes, I need to get myself up to Jerusalem and see what's going on here. So he gets there, and now watch this. The high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. That didn't take long. One would think that after a few years of this stuff going, I want you to think of yourself as having an offense and then going and trying to settle this offense and going to court, hiring like someone to speak on your behalf. Remember Turtleus, the, the, the orator that they hired? Having it not go your way, and then two years go by. Wouldn't like for normal people two years make things calm down a little bit? I mean, it's not like Paul was doing anything in Jerusalem at the time. He's in prison in Caesarea, right? So here comes the new governor, three days in his capital city, and he comes straight up to Jerusalem, and it tells us that uh, as soon as he gets there, the high priest... Start going after Paul again. They just will not let this rest. That's how Satan is. That's why Peter told us to be sober and vigilant. Because he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's a reference to satanic attacks on Christians. So that's why you need to be vigilant in prayer. That's why you need to be steady and constant in the word. That's why when church is open and meeting, you need to be there. That's why you need to be reading the Bible and trying to memorize the Bible. That's why you need to be having conversations with each other and praying with one another and talking to one another. You don't devote yourself to the things that make Christians strong, then you're weak. Please receive that from a brother who loves you and a brother who's vulnerable just like you are. Devote yourselves because he doesn't let up. So, new governor, hey, this might be a opportunity, there might be an opportunity here. Let's go and ask him a favor, verse 3 says. Here's what we're going to do. Since it's a new governor, and we know that he needs to make nice with us. Let's see if he'll bring Paul back from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And while we do, we'll plot an ambush on the road. These are their religious leaders. These are the chief priests. These are the, this is the Sanhedrin. These are, these are the religious leaders. That tells you all you need to know about religion right there. That's why Christianity has really nothing to do with it. Christianity is love for Jesus, love for your neighbor, love for your brother, 
Worship of God, service to the Lord, abiding in his grace. It's not religion. There's all you need to know about religion right there. Let's play politics, okay? Let's play some politics. Hmm, he needs us. Let's make it, let's, let's, let's say, I tell you what, you know, you want to you wanna do a favor, you want to do something nice, bring Paul back. We need, we, Festus, uh, Felix left him there. We need to wrap up this Paul business. Bring him back. And then hire assassins to kill him on his way. Pretty much tells you all you need to know about religion, right? Festus answered. Of course, we already know that the Lord Jesus had said that Paul's going to go to Rome, right? So obviously this is not going to happen. We already know that. Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, said that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, let those who have authority among you come with me. Go down with me. You always go down from Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem. You go down from Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what direction it is. So go down with me. See if there's any fault in him. Then he hangs out for 10 days. More than 10 days. Right? You think anything simmered down? You think the... You think the satanic fervor to murder the Apostle Paul simmered down in those 10 days? Nope. The next day, <laughs> sitting on his judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought in. And when he'd come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul. Again, again, again. All the same stuff. They never let it go. Relentless. Spiritual warfare is relentless. We all battle. We all struggle. We all fail. Step one to being a Christian, living in this life close to the Lord. Step one is to acknowledge that spiritual warfare is real and our enemy is relentless and therefore you must be relentless in your pursuit of God. Beloved, beloved, having these promises, having the precious promises of God, of all the things we've been worshiping and glorying and everything we've been singing about and talking about today, having these precious promises, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, perfecting, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. As relentless as Satan is in wanting to tear us down, we must be relentless in our pursuit of God and pursuit of holiness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We must be relentless in the pursuit of seeking God. Not casual. Amen? Anybody? So here we go again. Many serious complaints which they could not prove. Paul answers for himself again. Neither against, I explained this already, not the Jews, not against the temple, not against Caesar. Jewish law, religious law, Roman law. Haven't broken a single thing. That's it. That's it. And they can't prove it anyway. Right? That's it. No long oration from Paul this time. Just That's it. Festus, look, here comes the politician. Ready? Hey, Christians, you know, I understand you vote for the right people. I understand we have issues we care about. That's all fine, but sometimes I just wonder why Christians waste their time in politics. 
Here's politics. Ready? There's politics in the Bible. Did you know that? Here it is. This is one of the most political passages in the whole Bible. Right? They know there's a civil war brewing. Right? They know there's an uprising. There's a rebellion. A revolution is brewing. The Romans don't want it to happen. But they're ready to crush it if it does. Which it did. And they did. Right? The Jews want the uprising to happen, but before it does, they want to take full advantage of the fact that they know that the Romans are trying to prevent it. So this is all politics. This is all politics while the foolishness, ineptness of men drives them to a certain destructive and murderous war. That's politics. Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. So he does the same thing that Felix did. He wants to accommodate them. He knows that, he knows that they want him to go up to Jerusalem. So maybe, maybe I could do it. Asks Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, here's where walking with God really comes in handy, if I could put it like that. That's kind of a crude, foolish, weak way to put it. But because Paul walked so closely with God, he was filled with what? If any of you lacks wisdom, right? Let him ask of God who gives you all liberally and without reproach. Paul is filled with wisdom because he's so close to the Lord. He's filled with the source of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Paul was feared the Lord and was close to the Lord. Walk with the Lord. So he had wisdom. And so Paul gives this wise answer. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that Paul said, you know, let me think about it. You know what? Let me pray about it. There's nothing wrong with saying that. You ask me things. You know, I say that all the time. Need to think about it. Need to pray about it. That's wise. That's good. But Paul's walk so closely with the Lord comes right to him. I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. This, right here, right now, this is where I ought to be judged. Enough! To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I'm an offender, have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. If I'm guilty, prove it and kill me. Finish this. Right? But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, which there wasn't, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Good for Paul. <laughs> Hallelujah. And so Festus... You appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And Paul must have been like, hallelujah, exactly as you said, Lord, this is what's going to happen. Amen. Now, what, what do we derive as Christians spiritually from this? Well, I've already been discussing it. We are in a spiritual war. I don't mean over the politics of the day. Biden won and Trump lost. This is a spiritual war. Enough! Souls are destined for hell for all eternity because all men along with Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, and they are rightly, justly judged and condemned and destined for hell. 
God, in love, made a way for men to be redeemed. He gave his son. Raise your hand if you have a son. Raise your hand if you have a son. Raise your hand if you have a daughter. Say you have children. You remember what it was like when they were really young? Right? God's son was born. Do you remember the day your children was born? Boy, I remember mine. Exactly. I could put myself there. You know, I could put myself there, remember exactly what I was doing. I, I visited many of your children in the hospital when, or wherever when they were born too, and I remember a lot of that. But, and there's something special about your firstborn, isn't there? I love both of my children, I do. But there's something, there's something very unique, there's something very powerful and unique about going from being having, not having children to having children. That change is like, You can't even remember what life was like before that. God had one son, his firstborn son. And on the day, the night that Jesus was born, God already knew what was going to happen to him. Can you even comprehend that? My son was born... And you know, I, I, I think I have this right that babies can't actually see when they're born quite yet. They just came out of the womb. But you know, in the moment that Jonathan's born, handed to me, and, and our eyes connect, at least I think they do, you know. It, it, it doesn't matter. He, he, couldn't, he can't remember this anyway. But, 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 but for me, I actually have a photo of this. So I, I don't know if it was Roberta or the nurse, but one of them photographed me holding Jonathan in that first moment, looking down, and our eyes connect. And that was it. I was... Can you imagine if, like, you had that experience, which many of you have, but you knew when he was still young and in the prime of his life, he was going to be betrayed, scourged, mocked and crucified to rescue your enemies. What on earth do Christians do wrapping themselves up in earthly politics when our charge is to take that message of redemption to the world? Amen. We should be obsessed with this. Amen. The making of disciples then, when someone believes, they come in, they get baptized, and they begin to read the word of God, they begin to fellowship with the church, and they begin to grow. We should be obsessed with this. Amen. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. The same Paul, when he's in prison, because when he goes to Rome, you know what happens? He just remains a prisoner, wondering if Caesar's judgment is going to lead to his death or to life. But when he's in Rome, he writes all kinds of stuff. Paul knows what he's gone through. Paul knows what he's in the middle of. And so the Lord puts it in his heart to wrap up this letter to Ephesus. 
In verse 10 of chapter 6, Ephesians 6, see the word finally? Finally. So after all the things that Paul says in this letter to the Ephesians, which has both theology and practical instruction and everything else, he reaches this point in verse 10, finally. In other words, here you go. Here's the, here's the thing I want to leave you with. Listen, Christians. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That's the word. Listen, look at me. Please look at me. Look at me. Those are the words of someone who is obsessed with this. It's not casual. It's not a religion that he's calling you to. That's not a hobby. Away with your hobbies. Nothing wrong with hobbies. But that's not what this is. That's not the words of someone who's trying to get you to add something nice to your life. Those aren't the words of someone who's trying to get you to just trust God enough so he'll fill up your bank account and and give you all these earthly goods and treasures and everything else. Those aren't the words of someone who's obsessed with like, you know, he had this squabble with this person or this dispute with that person. All the things that humans get themselves. That's the words of someone who's obsessed with what Jesus has called them to. He's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die. And he tells the Christians in the church at Ephesus and the other churches that we receive it, including you and I, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Strong power might. You see those three words? You think he's trying to get something across? Strong power might. And he says it to you. He doesn't say, Finally, my brethren, God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, God will make you as strong and as powerful and mighty as He chooses for you to be. Just relax and rest in Him. No. You are commanded to be strong. And then He tells you how. This should be the daily obsession of your life. Put the armor on. Put the armor on. The command to put the armor on implies what? It's not automatically there. Hello? The fact that we're commanded to put the armor on means that it's possible to walk around without the armor on. The fact that we're commanded to put the armor on means that God doesn't put it on. You do. You do. That Deacon Bob preached a few weeks ago, that passage where Peter said, giving all diligence, add to your faith, etc., etc., etc. God's poured it all into you. You need to put it on. God has, as it were, appeared before you and laid out a spiritual uniform. And it's laying there. And Paul says, pick it up and put it on. Paul knows because Paul went through all this stuff in Jerusalem and Caesarea that we're reading about in the book of Acts. Paul knows. Will you listen? 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Look, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What was Paul doing in Acts chapter 25? He was standing against the wiles of the devil. He was, the wiles mean, old-fashioned word, means schemes, plots. It literally said they were plotting. The word plot was in the passage. They were literally, as Satan was trying to destroy Paul, they were plotting to kill him and destroy him. And Paul knows what he's talking about here when he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against those satanic plots. And then he says, why? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul knew that those Jewish religious leaders were not his enemies. That's That's amazing. Again, the politics. Those Democrats. Liberals. Some of you might even flip that the other way. I don't, I don't even want to go there. I, I got a little hard time with that. But I don't. In, a, in, in the end of the day, I'm reading the Bible, and the Bible says I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're looking at me right now and wondering what's he going to say next. Why don't you direct your eyes to your Bible and see the words in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You notice that Paul includes them. You notice that Paul does, you know, you notice that it doesn't say, for I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It says, we don't. We don't. He's trying to teach you and I, God is, through Paul. Here's what we wrestle against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. In other words, not human beings, because he said we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Flesh and blood means people. People are not our enemies. Jesus told us to love our enemies. Jesus told us to pray for people that spitefully use us. Scripture tells us that even when people are bad to us, we should be good to them because in so doing, we we heap coals of fire on their heads. That's how we're told to respond. It's different. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's counter social media. It's against anti everything that is popular and customary against this world. Do good to those who hate you. That's right. But we do wrestle against what? Things, beings, powers that we don't see. Forces of evil. That's there. That's why you need spiritual armor because it's spiritual war. That's right. You need spiritual armor. Elsewhere, scripture talks about God giving us that which we need to tear down strongholds. Wickedness in the heavenly places. There's wickedness in heaven. He doesn't mean heaven at the throne room of God. Though the Bible does tell us at one point that Satan walked right up to the throne room of God to accuse Job. It does, right? Doesn't say that? Yeah. There's real wickedness afoot. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day having done all to stand. Now look, real quick, I'll just read you. I'm not going to take the time to... I mean, there's, there's a whole sermon here starting in verse 14, and I'm not going to give that now. I did once. Did you know that the first sermon I ever preached when I was 23 years old, long before I was the pastor, the pastor went away, asked me to preach. This was the passage that I preached. Probably wasn't very good, but... Um, stand therefore, all right? Having girded your waist with truth. Here's your spiritual armor. Here's your uniform. 
Ready? Here's your uniform. Around your waist, truth. Are you versed in the truth? Do you study the truth? Do you love the truth? Do you stand on the truth? Do you depend on the truth? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. He doesn't elaborate. A, bless, a breastplate, of course, you know, big piece of armor you put right on your front, right? Righteousness. What is that? Well, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. The righteousness of Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But So there's that essence, but he's talking, I think, more practical here because he tells you to put it on. That righteousness which I get from Jesus, I don't put that on. He clothes me with that. The righteousness I'm told to put on, the only righteousness I can put on is the devotion of my living in righteousness to him. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, I like to hike. I like to walk. I've been doing a lot of walking lately. Um, went on vacation. Took the wrong kind of... Well, I took shoes with me where the inner soles were kind of falling apart. And I ended up with a big old blister on the bottom of my foot because I didn't have the right kind of shoes on. I should have taken more care about that. As a Christian, it's the preparation of the gospel of peace that is your right footwear. Amen. You're ready to share the gospel. Preparation of the gospel of peace is twofold. Your own commitment to it and your commitment to share it with others. Amen. Above all, ooh, there's a, above all, those other things seem pretty important. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Trust, 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 trust. You know, you come, you say something to somebody, you do something, you say something to me, and I say, oh, just trust the Lord. I say, trust the Lord. You think I'm just like copping out? That's the shield of faith. Amen. Above all, trust God. Above all, Trust him. More important than anything in your life, trust the Lord. Defiantly trust God. And you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Don't you know that Paul knew something about fiery darts coming at him? Just read about, just read about it in Acts 25. Take the helmet of salvation. A helmet protects your head, guards you from the killer blow. The only thing that can guard you from the killer blow is the salvation of God. Right? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, not a butter knife, not one of those plastic lightsabers, you know, they're kind of cool and everything, you know, swinging around. No, the sword, the sword, the sword. Elsewhere, the, the Word says that it's a double-edged sword, right? In other words, the sharpness of the blade is on both sides. Swing, swing, swing. The Word of God does that, right? Jesus exemplified it himself. Throw yourself down! Because the Word says, give his angels charge over you. No, 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 no. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Right? Turn these stones into... No, no, no. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. That's taking the sword of the Spirit. Jesus exemplified it for us. Amen. And then, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. So, pray for each other and pray for me, Paul says. Prayer. That's your activity. There you go. Paul knows what he's talking about because he experienced it. He was going through it in Acts chapter 25. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me. What's he talking about? He's talking about preaching the gospel. That's what he's talking about. Pray for me that I would open my mouth and speak the gospel of Christ. Pray for each other the same thing, that you would open up your mouths and speak the gospel of Christ. When's the last time you prayed for anybody sitting in this room that they would have boldness to open up their mouths and preach the gospel? I can name lots of times where we prayed for someone who was sick to get well. 
I can remember lots of times where we prayed for someone in some situation where God said, make, where we asked God to make it better. I can pray for, I can remember all kinds of occasions where we prayed and asked God to respond to certain prayer requests that God would do this thing or do that thing. When is the last time I ever got a prayer request or is the last time that you ever prayed a prayer where you asked for your brothers and sisters who have boldness to speak the gospel of Christ? That's what this is about. Amen. That's right. I don't, I'm not trying to be hypey with you. Okay? I'm not trying to be rah-rah, hypey. I'm not trying to like be anything in front of you today. I'm not trying to act in any particular way. I don't care about any of that. Amen. I love you. I know you love me. I know you love me. You've shown me that over the last couple of weeks especially, but, but for the last 20 years and even longer than that, some of you, you have shown me that. I know you love me. Thank you for that. I cherish that. I love you too. And my love for you is the words that are coming out of my mouth above, above anything else. And so I say to you, I'm not trying to hype you up today. Yeah. You know, no, none of that. I want you to learn to walk in these things. Walk in these things. Walk in these things. Spiritual war. Let's leave it there. You understand? Paul is in a spiritual war and he knows how to respond. If you're in Christ, here's, here's the thing, you ready? If you're in, I don't, in a sense, don't take this the wrong way, but in a sense, I don't care what you think of any of this. Because I know that the reality is this. If you're in Christ, you're in this war. Whether you want to be or not, whether you perceive it or not, whether you think of it or not, if you're a Christian, Satan is walking around trying to destroy you. And you are told how to stave that off. And you're in it. Who are you going to submit yourself to to obey? If you're not in Christ, you're not even in it. If you're not in Christ, nothing I said to you today has any relevance to you at all, except this, you're destined for hell because of your sin. You are part of the rebellion, and God will crush the rebellion one day. And anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be sentenced to the lake of fire. And the only way your name is in the book of life is if you come to the one who is the life and put your faith in him. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. Repent. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Believe the gospel. Cry out to him. Receive Jesus. As many as received him. To them he gave the power to become the children of God. To those who believed in his name. Receive him and be saved. When that happens, you've enlisted. You've enlisted and you're in the war. Then you put on the armor of God. The destiny of the war is already certain. God has won. One day we'll realize it. You sang about it today. You seemed pretty happy when you were singing about it. Let's live it. Amen. Let's be it. Let's do it. Let's live it. You can. Yes. Amen. God is for you. Yes. He is in you and he is for oh, you. Amen. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you call us. 
Thank you, Lord, that you call us and you're with us and you're for us, Lord God. Bringing us, Lord, to eternal life through Jesus, your Son. And then as we walk day by day, even never leaving us or forsaking us, promising always to be with us. Help us, Lord God, to put on the whole armor of God. Thank you that it's even there to put on. Thank you for opening our eyes to it. Help us to walk devoted as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.